Let us pray. So, Father, we thank you for your promise that we will, if we seek you, we will find you when we seek you with our whole hearts. So, Lord, today, may we seek you. May we seek to be more like Jesus. May we seek to hear from your word and to be instructed. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning, and um, thank you for coming out on a rainy morning. I'm grateful for the rain. It's been pretty dry, but so good to see all of you. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to the 15th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Today, looking at these two parables in Luke 15. These two parables in today's Gospel readings are quite familiar to many of us, no doubt. Yet there is always room for each of us, beginning with me, to learn even more of God's truth and what the Spirit is saying to you and me, God's people, the church, as we take a fresh look at a familiar scripture passage. And both of these parables contain common elements, a search for something which has been lost, something which is of great value to its owner, and also, second, great rejoicing on the part of the owner when that which is lost is found. It's important to note here as we look at these parables that this rejoicing in both instances is not merely internal or private, but extends beyond the owner, the one who made the search, to public thanksgiving. So it goes past the individual to public thanksgiving. The second thing we need to understand is to whom Jesus is directing these two parables. And the answer to this becomes clear in the opening verses, especially when we also look at the setting or context of these parables. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So clearly those being addressed here are the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, the religious and cultural elite in Jesus' day. And if we back up to the end of chapter 14, this focus becomes even clearer because there in the final two verses of the chapter, we read Jesus saying these words, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The inference here is that these religious leaders are missing the heart and the mission of God. And in contrast, it is notorious sinners like these despised tax collectors who are being reached by God as they draw near to Jesus. Now, there was a reason, I know I've talked about this in the past, and maybe you know this, but there's a reason why tax collectors were despised. The way things worked in the Roman system was there was a set amount of taxes that needed to be collected, and the way the tax collector earned his living was by adding on an amount above and beyond that for his own pocket, and there were no limits to what they could do with that, so it was a wicked and abusive system. But here we see tax collectors being drawn to Jesus. And this is in continuity with a theme we see repeated in St. Luke's Gospel, where women, Gentiles, Samaritans, shepherds, 
the unclean, the demon-possessed, even tax collectors, people pushed to the margins of society are being brought in or being called to new life in Christ. And then finally, to understand the setting and focus, we must understand that the ultimate focus here in both of these parables is on God, on Jesus, God the Son, who is the supreme outworking of God in reflecting the heart of God for the lost. So what I want to do in our remaining time this morning is to look at these two parables in a little more detail, then conclude with some key points of application for us. So let's begin with verses 3 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost sheep identifies the sinner, the person in need of God's grace and redemption, with the sheep here in this parable that is lost. The sheep is outside of the protection of the flock or the sheepfold. This one sheep is of such great importance to the shepherd that he leaves the remaining 99 to go in search of the one. Now, to be clear, it is not as if the shepherd leaves the 99 unprotected. Shepherds in that day typically worked together. So this shepherd would have temporarily left his flock in the care of his shepherd companions while he went to search high and low for the one that was lost and in danger. The point here is not that the remaining 99 are left uncared for. They are not. Rather, what we see here demonstrates the special care and concern which is received by the one who is lost. There's also irony at work here in light of the immediate audience to whom this parable is directed. Godly leaders in Scripture, old, both the Old and the New Testament, are often depicted as shepherds. We get our Greek word pastor from the same word that is used for shepherd. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself is identified as the good shepherd. John 10, 11 tells us in the words of Jesus, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In our Anglican tradition, at the consecration of a bishop, and some of you will have the opportunity, everyone's invited in February, to attend the consecration of a new bishop, which will be at the Falls Church Anglican. But you will hear the archbishop charge our new bishop with these words. Be to the flock of Christ a shepherd, not a wolf. Feed them, do not devour them. Hold up the weak, heal the sick, bind up the broken, bring back the lapsed, and seek the lost. Do not confuse mercy with indifference. So minister discipline that you forget not mercy, that when the chief shepherd appears, you may receive the never-fading crown of glory. And at the ordination of every, every priest, the bishop charges the new priest with these words. I now exhort you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to be a messenger, watchman, and steward of the Lord. You are to teach, to admonish, to feed, and to provide for the Lord's family, and to seek for Christ's sheep, which are in the midst of this fallen world, that they may be saved through Christ forever. Those who lead God's people, those who are called to positions of leadership and ministries of leadership are often characterized by the imagery of a shepherd under Jesus Christ, our great and good shepherd. Yet this was probably an ironic offense to the Pharisees and the scribes 
because of their skewed thinking, because here Jesus invites them to imagine themselves as shepherds. Shepherds who were held in the culture at large and in low regard and were considered ritually unclean. And this probably would have been an affront to them. And there's also irony because finally in Jesus' indictment of the religious leaders, there is an echo and a connection to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34 is an indictment against the spiritual leaders of Israel. In Ezekiel's day, just like Jesus is indicting the leaders in his day for their failure to truly lead God's people and to shepherd God's flock. Ezekiel 34 verses 1 through 6 says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. And then in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, we read God's remedy to all of this. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. What we see here is a stark contrast between the heart and the mission of God and the hearts of these religious leaders have, who have lost sight of these things. They've lost sight of the heart and the mission of God. The heart of God who seeks the lost sheep. The heart of God who calls those who are to shepherd over the flock of God to lead by serving. And so Jesus addresses them here and demonstrates to them what the true heart of God looks like. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. And once again, these religious leaders would not readily ident have identified with the protagonist in the parable. First, we have a shepherd. Now we have a woman. A woman who has a lost coin for which she searches diligently. And this coin, while not of great value to many, would have been of immense value to her. This coin probably valued about 10 days' wages, a small sum of many, a small sum of money for many. But scholars believe in this parable, the illustration refers to someone like this woman where this money represented a dowry, the money that she brought into the marriage. And in the culture of her day, probably the only money that was technically and legally hers. For this woman to have lost this one coin was catastrophic. And Jesus depicts in great detail the lengths to which she goes to recover this lost coin. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. And she seeks diligently. She seeks diligently. Did you hear that? Until she finds it. 
So what points do we need to focus on here in these parables? What is our takeaway from these two parables in terms of our lives and in the life of All Saints Church? Well, first, we must fully embrace the heart and mission of God and join with him. Did you hear that? We must fully embrace the heart and mission of God and join with him. John 3, verses 16 through 17, very familiar words to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 2 Corinthians 5.18, again a familiar text of Scripture. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, did you hear that? That all should come or should reach repentance. If we are to be like Jesus, if our lives are to reflect the heart of God, then you and I, brothers and sisters, we must embrace and identify with God's heart for the lost and with his diligent, unrelenting seeking after them. We must do that. We must align ourselves with the heart and the mission and the will of God. We need to do that in ever greater measure, in the things that we are already doing, in seeking God and reaching out to this community, in, in the food giveaway that, thanks be to God, by his grace, he enabled us yesterday to serve 217 families with, with food and fresh produce and items that they need, our neighbors that are experiencing food insecurity. But beyond that, we pray for them. We invite them in. We offer them prayer even at that event. And there's so many other things that we are doing and God is calling us to do in ever greater measure. And we need to seek God and ask him to show us how to diligently seek out the lost in our community beyond where we already are, to reach out to the people of all the nations that God has brought right here to us, to our doorstep in Dale City. And beyond right here, God calls us to partner, to engage in mission partnerships with those who are planting churches, not just in our diocese, but across the country and with missionaries around the world, even as we heard from our missionary friends last Sunday, and to build partnerships with them that the gospel would reach the ends of the earth, that the good news of the gospel and, and God's diligently pursuing people is something that we would be a part of. It's something that we would enter into with all of our resources, with all of our energy, as we are aligned with the heart of God. And the message of Jesus and the gospel has taken to places where people still to this day have never once heard the name of Jesus spoken. We are again, in the words of Ezekiel 34, to seek the lost, to strengthen the weak, to heal the sick, bind up the injured, and bring back those who have strayed. To be clear, we are to seek the lost. We are to invite them in. We are called to build meaningful relationships with them, and we are called to love them. But remember, 
that does not mean we are to become like them. Did you hear that? That's important, and we need to, to keep that clear. Remember Luke 14, salt must not lose its taste. We are not to lose the savor of Christ and the gospel in our efforts to reach people. It's interesting that all three commentaries that I studied in preparing this message spoke to that issue. I want to quote from two of them. First, Daryl Box says this, Jesus did not share the sinner's activity, but he did befriend them, encourage them to come to know God and challenge them to repent. Joel Green said this, this openness is not without boundaries. The new group being generated around Jesus includes outsiders, but outsiders whose status has been reversed in the economy of the gospel and ratified by their repentance. Michael Bond, a science writer writing about two years ago in a magazine called Wired, wrote about the need to prevent human lostness. Children lost in the woods, he writes, is a common motif in modern fairy tales and in ancient mythology. Usually in fiction, there's some kind of redemption. Snow White is rescued by dwarves, and even Hansel and Gretel facing certain doom in the gingerbread house find their way home. Reality is often more grim. During the 18th and 19th centuries, getting lost was one of the most common causes of death among the children of European settlers in, North, in the North American wilderness. He continues, science researcher, researcher Dr. Jan Suman used GPS monitors to track numerous volunteers as they tried to walk in a straight line without technology, both through Germany's Biedenwald forest and the Sahara Desert. When clouds obstructed the sun, errors quickly accumulated. Small deviations became large ones, and these people ended up walking in circles. With no external cues to help them, people will not travel more than around 100 meters from their starting position, regardless of how long they walk for. This says a lot about our spatial system and what it requires to anchor us to our surroundings. In the absence of landmarks and boundaries, our head direction cells can't compute direction and distance and leave us flailing in space. The same is true for us spiritually, even as we seek to minister to and reach out to the lost. We have to stay firmly anchored in God. We have to stay firmly anchored in God's truth. It's not anything goes... This idea of cultural relevance in some churches has become an idol where anything goes and the end justifies the means and all kinds of extreme craziness can go on. Um, I can tell the story. I will tell the story without mentioning names of a church in Hartford County, Maryland, where we lived, which um, was a flash in the pan. They had really fast growth. And then the church, for a variety of reasons, imploded. But some of the gimmicks they were going through to attract people were like, come to church this Sunday, get a free $5 gas card. And then that pales in comparison. This, this is true. You can ask Tammy, come to church this Sunday and make a donation and see pastor, and I won't say his name, jump off a scaffold during the service. I kid you not. It's true. The end doesn't justify the means. 
We cannot lose our spiritual landmarks and boundaries. We must stay anchored to the truth of God. Yes, we are to be salt and light. We are to be in the world, but not of it. If we lose our saltiness, if we lose our taste, we have no use for the kingdom of God in reaching the lost. The second application today is that repentance and transformation are possible. I mean, Jesus was reaching out to tax collectors, some of the most despised people in the culture, people who in the eyes of the Pharisees and even probably many more godly people were beyond the pale of the reach of God's grace. But remember the words of 2 Peter we read just a little while ago. God desires that none should perish. Jesus doesn't offer man mere humanitarianism. Jesus does not offer a self-help or self-improvement program. What Jesus offers to them and continues to call us to is death to self and radical, God-breathed, Holy Spirit-empowered transformation that can only be brought about by the work of God in our lives and in the lives of other people. Yes, God's arms are indeed wide open and he invites all who would come to Christ to enter in. God invites people in, but beyond that, God pursues the lost. God pursues the lost. Remember, God pursued you and God pursued me and brought us in. And that is at the very essence of both of these parables. English poet Francis Thompson writing in the 19th century referred to God as the hound of heaven imagery that G.K. Chesterton used many times because of God's relentless pursuit and seeking out of the lost. We have a new puppy in our house who happens to be a hound and I can tell you he goes after everything that moves. Bug, bird, frog, fly. Tammy took him out one night right at bedtime and a frog hopped across the sidewalk. A man, he was gone after that frog. But God pursued us. God pursues the lost in the same way. If we are to be like Christ, we too must pursue intentionally the lost with the heart of God, with the passion of God, with the love of God. And then finally, we are to rejoice as God rejoices. Look at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then down in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When the lost are saved... There is rejoicing, and it is great. Rejoicing that is public. When people come to Christ, we need to rejoice not just inside ourselves, but we need to rejoice publicly. There is rejoicing in God's kingdom, both on earth and in heaven. There is rejoicing among the angels when a sinner repents. Do we really rejoice in that way when a person comes to Christ? Or do we or do I, and sometimes it happens to me, do we have sometimes a little of the Pharisees in us? And think, well, they did this, this, and this. And I've been living 
or trying to live a godly life. They don't deserve that. Or, or, or they didn't get what they deserved or what they had coming. Brothers and sisters, may we never forget that thanks be to God, none of us in Christ gets what we had coming. Amen. We are to rejoice. We are to join with God in his mission to seek out the lost, that they may come to know Christ and see their lives transformed. That is God's call to us as a church. That is, a, that is God's call to you wherever he has placed you, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, to seek out the lost, to build relationships, to love them, and to invite them in. As we do that, we will grow to be more and more like Jesus, and God will build his kingdom in and through us. And he will use us. He will use us if we submit ourselves to him, if we ask him to give us his heart and his eyes for the harvest, he will use us to touch people right where they are and to see them brought into a living relationship with Christ and be set free. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you have diligently pursued us and that you have brought us into life through Christ. Thank you, God, that we haven't gotten what we deserved, that we've been recipients of your incredible, wonderful, amazing grace. And Father, thank you that you call us to be your ministers of reconciliation, to continue Christ's work. And Lord, we need, we desperately need the power of your Holy Spirit to do this, for it can never be done in the flesh. Because you are not about change, you are about transformation, making all things new in people's lives. So Lord, fill us with greater vision. Fill us with your heart. Fill us with the desire to walk in obedience, joyful, passion obedience to your mission. Your mission of reconciling the world to yourself through Christ. And may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.